Well, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, grace and peace. My name is Steve Brooks, one of the pastors here at First Methodist Midland. Uh, Pastor Kurt Borden is coming up right now. Uh, glad that y'all are here tonight. Yeah, give him a hand. Uh, Man, so glad that y'all are here tonight. Uh, we are looking forward to uh, continuing our study. We, The first part of the semester, we were really digging into the places uh, where Jesus went. Now we're digging into the people that Jesus interacted with. There's so many different types of people, and uh, we uh, began our discussion of the Pharisees last week. Uh, we will continue that study tonight, and remember, we kind of left you last week uh, with the question, where is that little judgy Pharisee in you that has the tendency to come out and wag its finger at other people, Right? Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm pretty convinced of is that oftentimes we become blinded by our own certainty. And um, this is a problem that the Pharisees had. And uh, it's our hope tonight, like as you were preparing to come, and it's our hope that tonight that you came with a sense of expectation. Not that this is just something to do, to check off the list, to feel like you've done your duties, your religious duties, but that you're here tonight because you want there to be a shift in your heart. To become a little bit more connected with God's big purpose for your life. And that's why we gather around God's word each, each week uh, to share with you. So we're looking forward to that happening tonight. So as we begin our discussion of the Pharisees, I thought, well, what in the world? What would be a good psalm for a Pharisee to hear? Well, Psalm 131. It's one of my favorites. It's short, but I think it just addresses very, very clearly our temptation and the solution uh, is we're going to be dealing with tonight. So let's take a look. Psalm 131. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen, indeed. Well, we're going to pick up tonight in Matthew 23. Probably a familiar passage to you. Against my original plan, we're probably going to end up talking about the Pharisees for three weeks. I don't want to talk about the Pharisees for three weeks. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at what Jesus' topics were, and the time that he spent with certain groups of people, the runaway largest group that he talks to 
are the Pharisees. No doubt. And so as much as that may grate against us, we should listen to that. What our, our teacher, what our Lord uh, pays attention to, we should as well. I think there is a particular danger that occurred within the Pharisaic movement that threatened the rest of Judaism and it threatens the church constantly. It, it gets into human nature. So by way of, of quick review, we have to sort of appreciate the Pharisees were not just character bad guys. They weren't just cardboard, mustache-twirling bad guys uh, for Jesus. Uh, there, there is a reason their teachings and his end up colliding. As we said last week, the person that you tend to fight with the most in your childhood is your sibling. It's really not the kid down the street. It's not the bully. It's the one that you live with. And in a sense, Jesus is part of the rabbinic movement. So imagine, you know, a long spectrum of it. The Pharisees are one extreme end of it, and he's on the other. And so there always was going to be natural conflict between a rabbi from Galilee and the Pharisees from Judea. But Jesus is going to dig much deeper than most of the Shammai rabbis will do for the Hillel rabbis, which are the Pharisees. So that's a lot of insider knowledge. Let me, let me try to place this where we're at. You, and and who, do, who, who are we more like? You always say this. Yeah, I'm more Shammai and you're more Hillel. So <laughs> I'm the nice guy. He's the nice guy. I'm the old fuddy-duddy. If it doesn't say it, we're not doing it. So um, Jesus is, of course, his own path when That's they right. say he, he has shimka. Uh, he teaches unlike the other schools. He teaches with authority. We've never heard that before. Well, obviously, he teaches with more authority because, well, he's God. He, he is the Messiah. He is the ultimate teacher. But trying to understand in context how all this was going on. Judaism is stuck with two big, big questions. The first is, since they've come back from the exile, how should we worship God? Should we go back to the way we worshiped God before we lost our land? That's temple, that's priests, and that's literally what the Bible says. When God is putting everything together for Moses, it lays out in black and white. You should have priests, you should have temples, you have sacrifices. So should we go to that? There's a big segment of Jewish society that says yes. If it's in the Bible, we should do it. On the other hand, in the exile, there was this new way of approaching God that developed of making sure you teach the, your children, the next generation, the Bible. And as they began to lose the ability to speak Hebrew and spoke other languages as their culture changed, they made sure there were within their society teachers, uh, masters, uh, the best of the best that could still read Hebrew and could help people understand how the Bible made sense in a modern time. Because realize, it's a thousand years old, even for them in the time of Jesus. So it, it took a lot of work. So as they came back to their promised land, they're trying to decide, do we go to the temple again or do we stick to the synagogues? Now the synagogues were sort of these new innovations during the Sabbath, once a week. People would gather in their communities and they would study scripture. Their, their solution was pretty passionate. Nobody can burn the Torah, nobody can destroy it again if it's written in our hearts. If all of us believe it, it will never be lost again. So there is a lot of, of good, passion, 
attempt to hold on to God's teachings on both sides, but it really is getting nasty in society. Now, there's a second level question that just makes the first worse. After Alexander the Great's conquest of the East, defeating the Persian Empire, the spread of Greek culture became just predominant. Everybody starts to build uh, Greek uh, structures, practice Greek forms of government, speak Greek. What's the New Testament written in? Greek, because everybody can speak Greek. Uh, it's, it's just happening. And if you know anything about Greeks, <clears throat> these were not the most holy and righteous people. There's a reason fraternities use Greek names, right? Um, a lot of that wild, wild stuff. I mean, there's a lot of naked, just horrible stuff going on. And so much of Jewish society, again, this big question, some said, well, it's modern. It's sophisticated. We want to be like the Greeks and later the Romans. This is the smart thing to do. So you have Jewish men trying to uncircumcise themselves. <laughs> However, you can imagine them doing that. And then you have other groups that are saying, are we nuts? We don't need to be Greeks. We are the Amsagula. We are the chosen people from God. We have a special connection. His teaching with us. We've got to follow that. And that's really where the Pharisees arrived. They come, and we said this last week, but it's sort of resounding. They hate, I'm sure, that we call them Pharisee. That we say they go to synagogue. Because these are all Greek terms that have passed into us because the New Testament is written in Greek and we translate it into English. They never call themselves Pharisee. They said we are the separated or those who separate. Parushim. We step out of this Greek world. We want to be what the Bible teaches us to be. Now, this struggle, these two struggles get vicious. We mentioned last week when Pompey... Uh, the great, and you remember the collapse of the Roman Republic is led by three men assuming power. Uh, a young guy named Julius Caesar, hmm, heard him before, right? Uh, an old guy, an old general named Pompey, and then this idiot named Crassus who did nothing but die. So you have the three of them. Uh, Crassus is soon done away with. Uh, you have Julius Caesar who's winning all these great battles and Pompey who everybody expects to win the battles. Pompey needs a lot of money. He needs troops and so he goes to the east and that's where they usually raise a lot of money through taxes. And the... Pompey is, is busting heads, and he comes to take Jerusalem. The Pharisees hate the Sadducees, the priests, so much that they open the gates to their city to let in the Romans because they were the enemies of the priests. It's sort of like in modern-day politics. You hate fill-in-the-blank. Republicans, you hate Democrats so much you work with Putin. <laughs> We, we don't do that, right? Our ideological wars don't get so intense that we can't see you're making bad choices even though your, your origins weren't bad. You're trying to keep Torah, trying to teach the next generation, trying to maintain your culture. But this thing happens where we miss the forest. We miss the point because of our obsession of defending a leaf. And that's in many ways, what's happening to the Pharisee movement. Now, in all that we're going to say tonight in Jesus' teaching, 
we're going to try to balance this with the fact that many Pharisees do actually end up following Jesus. In fact, many of the leaders of the Pharisees will change sides. Uh, We'll talk about the Nicodemus, who's a member of the Sanhedrin. So this is the Jewish Congress. This is the highest rank. So it's it's like a senator uh, of the Pharisees changing sides. It's a big deal. Joseph Arimathea, uh, he's money bags. He's another very, very wealthy Pharisee. I forgot to mention, of course, Pharisees are a middle-class popular movement. And it's made up of mainly businessmen. So all across society, uh, the Pharisees are including people. They're very egalitarian, unlike the Sadducees that said you had to be born in certain houses or certain tribes. The Pharisees included everybody. And then we read in Acts that there are uh, large groups of Pharisees that join Jesus because they're convinced by Scripture. But that doesn't negate the danger that they had gotten themselves into. They're building walls to protect their culture got so extreme that the wall was keeping out God. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be that place, ever. I love God. I think we have to defend his teaching, especially now, just like they did then. But I don't want to lock him outside. Um, So... How's that for a quick introduction? All right. All right. So here we go. So Matthew chapter 23. It's a long uh, diatribe against the Pharisees. And we're really going to begin focusing in on verse 13 of these woes. There's seven of these woes. And I think a a good way to ponder it, uh, like to contextualize this relative to to the whole scripture, is to... That a woe is the opposite of a blessing. So really, like a good way to translate that would be cursed uh, to you. Cursed are you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And, you know, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Remember, it's laid out there. Deuteronomy's at 30, I think. The, the, the blessings and the curses. And, and so Jesus is picking up on that, uh, that train of thought. And I want you to notice something. Remember, we always encourage you to read Scripture in context. And so the, the, the leveling of a curse or a woe against someone in this context is directly proportional to their unwillingness to be humble. We'll just pick up in verse, uh, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. And if you'll read the previous context, it's all about how the Pharisees want to be, want to be noticed, right? greatest among you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted how many new testament authors uh, champion the benefits of humility <laughs> every one of them every one of them and so Whenever he says this, it's like, I think it, like before we get into these curses or these woes, it like, what, like, what is your working definition of humble? And are you humble? Well, you know the old joke, right? If you say you're humble, you're probably not. <laughs> yeah, right? So maybe ask your, ask your spouse. And I think humility is, is code. Remember the, the Hebrew word for blessing? 
you should remember this. It's Barack. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, no relation whatsoever, yeah, right. ever. It's an, his is an Arabic word. This is a yeah, Hebrew word. Yeah, so, so anyways, so uh, Barack. And, and remember, that that's an old word that originally meant to kneel. And so the way that I kind of put all that together in my head is that we cannot possibly receive that which God has for us and what we were made for until we are willing to kneel. And what did God do to ensure that we could receive that blessing? (laughs) The ultimate kneeling, coming to earth, dying on a cross, right? That's, this is humility. Uh, The greatest among you will be your servant, as Jesus was. And so these, these things are levied against the Pharisees because of their inability. Remember what I said at the beginning, that oftentimes we become blinded by our certainty. They were certain that they had built a full, fail-safe way to keep from breaking the law. And they built this fence. What's the fence called, Kurt? Shamar. Shamar. Built this fence called this, 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 this tight shamar. And this shamar was actually keeping themselves and keeping other people from experiencing connection with God and, in, and living into their true purpose. So let's get going. Woe to you. This is verse 13. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter in, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Because they were certain that this the traditions that they had built up around the law were right, and no one was going to tell them anything else. They would not be denied their understanding of this fence. Anything else? Yeah, so let's, let's dig into the details. The, the, the fundamental teaching of the, the rabbis is that with learning, with prayer, you can apply all of God's law or teachings to your modern setting. That the scriptures are not consigned to history. They apply today. And so they would say the best people to help you understand how to live a godly life is a teacher, a rabbi. And so there are long lists of what rabbis perform rulings on. Um, In Hebrew, they call it halakha. So is it permissible? Is it not permissible? Uh, we see Jesus talk to his disciples this way. When he's, and he says, um, what you bind in heaven, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That, that's how the, the rabbis would rule it. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that have changed. Uh, pork, obviously, was forbidden to eat, right? But what about shrimp? There were no shrimp in the time of Moses. So can you eat shrimp? Can you eat M&M's? I mean, there's lots of questions, and this stuff still goes on today where we have to make an educated guess, is this permissible under what God intended? So again, the Pharisees are trying to give you the best sermon possible. They're trying to give you the practical steps that you can follow the law. God says don't work on Saturday, that you should take a rest. 
Okay. Can you do laundry? Is that work or not? Mm, yeah, it is. <laughs> if you're a husband, it's not work. If you're a wife, it's work because you're the only one that does it, right? Uh, the, can you mow the yard? Can your kids clean your room? And it's not just you coming up with an opinion. It's what is it? What does God really want? And so you see this go on generation after generation, and the lists of can I, can I not, can I get pretty long. They, they really do. In essence, the shamar gets bigger, taller, and wider. Exactly. And it, it didn't start bad, but it very quickly turns into this overwhelming series of legal codes of what I can do on Saturday. And Jesus is really, really reacting to that. You're, you're, you're making it so hard to approach God because you've turned it on all these rules. Now he says they have to be humble. So what, what were they doing? If we took elements of Jewish society that were running around with Jesus, we took a Roman. Are they, are they humble? Nope. If we took a Sadducee, we haven't talked about them, but um, if you stood at Sadducee, they are nobles. They are priestly lines. They have their lineage back to the tribe of Moses, Aaron, and they are the rulers in the temple. Generally, they're the most wealthy. Uh, they're the most Greek. Uh, they don't dress like a good Jew. Do you think they're very humble? Nope. Uh, how about the terrorists that are out running around killing people? Um, we'll talk about them, the zealots and the scari. They're, they're not very humble. So you have to appreciate Jesus is doing what he always does. He's shocking people a little bit. If you ran across all these groups and then a Pharisee, the last thing you would say, really, you got a problem with the Pharisee? The Pharisee's not being humble? What a Pharisee is doing is trying to engage average people. The Sadducees could care less. If you're not born to their tribe, you don't matter. You have a different function from God. We have ours. Ours is to rule over you. We're, we're separate. What the Pharisees tried to do is say, hey, look, this business of being godly is everybody's responsibility. It's not those corrupt priests that we can't trust. All of us are called by God to live a different life. So we want to train, to teach everybody how to do it right. So again, walking down the street, you would see a Sadducee, you know, with a toga, his big belly hanging out, and then you would see a Pharisee dressed very conservatively, and the most important garment they wore, do you know? Their prayer shawl. So part of your identity as a Jew, part of your, your status as a man, is when you came under the law, when you were old enough to perform mitzvahs, a righteous acts. And so you have your bar mitzvah. You are a son of the law. And you wear this prayer shawl with you. Now, they'll wear it on their shoulders. And again, it's, it's their faith in a physical form. When they pray, you're supposed to lift it over your head and it becomes your closet. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, go into your closet and pray. So many of the Pharisees will create a headdress that they leave it on themselves all of the time. So they're making the really obnoxious statement that I'm in continuous prayer. Yeah, 
And so you see what I mean? It, 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 they're trying to get to people to change people's hearts, but it gets a little, a little thick. Now, it's interesting. When we watch modern depictions of Jesus back then, we almost always get this part right, that the Pharisees, because of their particular branch of rabbinic Judaism, their colors, rabbis have colors like sports teams, uh, so their colors are black and white, and so they'll wear, you see them wear the prayer shawls in black and white. Who else wore a prayer shawl? All the time. Jesus. How do we know this? Because when people actually go to touch Jesus, they're grabbing the hem of his robe, the tzitzit uh, that the woman grabs. These are the little tassels on the side of it. Have you ever seen Jesus depicted with a prayer shawl? We make Jesus a little more Gentile because he looks more like us. Um, you know, we, we give him goofy sashes so he looks like an Easter card. But we, we avoid making him too Jewish, which I think is a mistake. But you can see the Pharisees going, going too far. Um, they're intimidating people by trying to encourage them. The other way Jews will pray is with phylacteries or tefillim, tefillim. I don't know if you've, have you seen these? You've got pictures of them. It's a, it's a thing. I have one. Um, I think we've got a picture of it. But these things are so hard to put on, I can't do it. Um, so it's a little box with God's commands out of Deuteronomy. Remember he said, attach them to your doorposts and to your forehead. To bind them on your arm. Bind them on your arm. Which is the thing on his arm. So this is how this gets started. That's all the command that God gave. He didn't give instructions. So for generations, these Pharisaic rabbis have said, well, we can't write it in our forehead. That would be weird. So make a black box and put the scripture in there so God's word is right on your forehead. Who could argue with that? And then you want to bind your right hand uh, with the word of God because this is the hand that you use. Um, remember, it's the good hand. This is the bad hand. This is the hand that you use, uh, and it needs to be godly. And then there's something about you put it in your heart. I mean, I can't even keep up with it. There's like 200 commands for these teflon. And Jesus is saying, look, you, you make these big showy things, and if, you still see it in Israel today. I mean, Jews, they get serious uh, when they pray. You bunch of slackers. All you do is bow your heads, you know. What, you know why don't you get dressed up nice for God um, if you really loved him? Uh, so good intentions turning into, yeah, that's kind of a sideshow. Um, can you see the other box right here? So when he lowers that, what's it next to? His heart. So who could disagree with any of those, but you put the sum total together yeah, it, it gets a bit much. Jesus is like, you know, we have our prayer shawls. We're Jewish men. We're, we're proud of that. That's what we do. But we don't need our prayer shawls on 24-7. We don't need all of this dress up. And so this is really where he's, he's starting to part company with them and say, look, your, your wall is everything. Um, sure, there's, there's good intention with your detail, but all you seem to care about now is the detail. So two things to remember about the Pharisees. They were trying to include all people. They're far more egalitarian than any group that's come before. 
except for the Christians. Jesus will blow that out of the water. And they really, uh, the, the Pharisees really were driven, like Steve and I have talked about, to try to get as many Jewish people to rediscover their Jewish identity. They don't want him to f- side with the Romans. They don't want him to side with the Greeks. Uh, they, they want to try to save their people. Part of the notion is, as a, a Jew, you have inheritance from God. And that inheritance is not only the land of Israel, but in what they call the Ha'olam, the world to come. Jesus is using this word a lot. It's translated for us kingdom, but they view that there is the world that is and then the world to come. The transition moment between those is the Messiah coming, or as they say, Basora, the gospel. So the transition between these two worlds is happening before them, but they're still, in a sense, retreating behind their walls because they don't want to lose what they have, and they're losing the teaching of God. Yeah. So, all right. So just to capitalize on a couple of things that Kurt was saying, um, we're Methodist. And um, Methodists talk about how we get closer to God by participating in what? The means of... Wow. The means of... Grace. Grace. That's right. So prayer, scripture reading, uh, fasting, uh, worship, both public and private, those sorts of things, they are a means to an end of connecting with God and living into our purpose and our partnership with God of reflecting his image out into the world. None of them become an end in of themselves. And this was the problem with the Pharisees. Is there, there became, the wall became so tall and wide and so big that you felt good about yourself because you did the act. Right? You put the box on your head. You, you did all that you did on Sabbath, but you missed the beauty and the majesty and the glory of all that God has made. And so that's, that's when we start veering. We all have this temptation of veering into Pharisee territory when our spiritual practices become an end of themselves. They're always a means to experiencing the fullness of God, his grace. Why do pastors wear robes? Did God command it? No. The reason Protestants wear robes, black ones, is because we're reflecting that we were, te- we were doctors in a, re- in a secular sense. Like Martin Luther was a professor from a college, so he could stand up in his college robes and wear those. But we like that, right? Ooh, I get to wear a robe. I'm somebody special. When you're a pastor, you get these catalogs. You don't get them much anymore because you don't get catalogs. But man, the cool things I could order as a pastor, these clothes, I could get collars, ooh, and cool stoles. And I don't even can't name all these things. I mean, you, you'll see certain denominations. I mean, they dress up like the Pope, right? Oh, look how holy I am. I mean, there's, there's coverages. And, and I think Jesus would have the same kind of, you, you pick on the Pharisees, but 
you're not humble when you dress like that, but I'm representing God. So I came from the New Mexico conference uh, of the United Methodist Church. <sighs> Our conference included Texas and then northern New Mexico, where's where, where God sent uh, aliens and lunatics uh, to live. <laughs> And so the fashion in New Mexico, especially Santa Fe and Albuquerque, was to have these giant crosses. And they had to be, you know, Native American crosses because we're sensitive and loving. We affirm our commitment. You know, shut up. I mean, but, it, you know, I, my wife is Baptist and I take her to one of the meetings first time and she's like, what is wrong with these guys? I mean, they look like gangbangers with these big crosses on. <laughs> and, and I'm like, the, the what started in the Pharisees continues with us. We like these big showy. I'm different than you. I'm whole. Of course I want you to know Jesus. But first check this out. I mean, this is why I think he spends so much time with it. Because it happens to us. We're different. We're better. We love Jesus. Don't I, don't I deserve a little something special? And like Pastor Steve said... Humility is, is on your knees. Uh, we're all saved, even though we don't deserve it. So we just, we have to guard yep. against this stuff sinking in. The Pharisees are really good at proselytizing. We would say evangelism. For the first time in Jewish history, the Pharisees are making converts to Judaism, which is crazy. I don't know how they did it. Remember, the whole world is going Greek. The whole world wants to be like Rome. But suddenly, both in the Bible and in historical sources, we have these God-fearers showing up. Now, the Romans, we'll talk about, they're kind of burned out. They, they don't even believe in their own gods. They're very, very cynical. So you have a lot of Romans adopting mystery cults and, and things from the East. This is one of the reasons they'll adopt Christianity in large numbers. But before that, a lot of Romans in particular started to follow the Jewish customs. And the Pharisees were the ones doing that. So again, they're not cardboard bad people that are just dressing silly. They're very passionate, very intentional, but they're losing sight. Um, do you want to hit that scripture, what Jesus says? You make converts. Uh, yeah, you, well, you do that. you've already unpacked it for them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So, <laughs> kind of to take one more layer of where Pastor Kurt went, there's kind of two levels of these uh, Gentiles who started following uh, these Jewish cut the, the the ways of the Pharisees or the way the Jewish customs, the the God fears which he's he's already mentioned and whenever you in, in Acts you'll read about God fears but there were also proselytes. You know what the only difference between a God fear and a proselyte is? A foreskin. <laughs> are you committed or are you just dabbling? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that, and that's it. That's it. And so who do you think the Pharisees held in greater esteem, a God-fearer or a proselyte? Come on. Yeah, of course. Twice as much a child of hell than they were before because they were able to check off a box. But was their heart 
really connected with who God was calling them to be. Verse, go ahead. <laughs> so, again, I, I think Jesus spends so much time with this because it gets into a massive danger for the church. When the church began to spread Christianity around the world, how did we do it? Ooh. When the Spanish arrived in America, they told the native people, right, the most important thing for you is to accept Jesus. Keep your culture you don't have to be like us, but please accept the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Right? Is that how that went down? No. Uh, no. We insisted that they learn our language. We insisted that they dress like us. Now, certainly they have a lot of customs. You know, human sacrifice, God's not a big fan. So, yeah, some of those things really needed to be stopped. But we make them in our image. What, what was the... The, the debate in the, the church, early church, should Gentiles become Jews or can they stay Gentiles and also love Jesus? So we got let in even though we didn't have to conform to the culture of the Jews. And then we turned around and forced whoever we encountered to accept our culture. We did it in Africa. It's, we had a mission professor uh, that used to lecture us about the Africans thought in order to be a Christian, you had to wear shoes, have one wife, and smoke tobacco. Because that's really what the missionaries told them. Um, you've got to sort of pick up and act like us to accept Jesus Christ. We've, we've been down this road. We've made a lot of mistakes ourselves in trying to force people to follow the image of Christianity. Now, I want to be very, very clear because this is hard. This is an involved conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. At no point is Jesus or the Pharisees saying, ignore scripture. They're not saying, push away God's law. There are elements in their society that do say that, but both Jesus and the Pharisees would reject them. This is a conversation about groups that are trying to hold on to the teaching of, of the Bible. In that arena, how do we do it? How do we, in a world that denies the basic sexuality of Scripture, hold to that without... I think we do, and I think we have to, but we can't let the rules of... Well, one church I served in Tennessee always served white uh, grape juice. And they had since the Civil War. So, you know, I've been a Methodist. I know about uh, once a month communion. I know about, we use Welch's grape juice, right? Because that's Jesus's brand of grape juice. Uh, you use Hawaiian bread because that's what Jesus used and it tastes good, right? But I'd never heard why we used, in Tennessee, we used white grape juice. They said, well, uh, we used to have carpet that got stained. Um... I'm like, but you've changed the carpet. I know. But it became a tradition in Tennessee to use white grape juice. Okay. That kind of stuff, I think, makes Jesus nuts. What's the main point of all of this? To go to your God and have your sins forgiven so you can help another person know that there's sins. Know that we can't act like farm animals when it comes to sex. Um, but... There is a way to be forgiven. 
So not to teach them the Christian ease culture. I mean, it's helpful at times, but it's just that wall that we need to get closer to Jesus. To get closer to God is where Jesus had to have the conversation go. Again, it didn't matter if you went to Rome and you made a convert, and all that convert saw is, I can't eat pork, I have to get circumcised, uh, and I don't do anything on Saturday. Those are not what God wants from anybody. They're tools. I mean, God wants you to go to the gym to get healthy. He doesn't just want you to go to the gym to look buff and wear nice. You know, there's always that guy in the gym that wears the short shorts. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, I hope you don't. Um, <laughs> that's not the purpose of a gym. It's, it's really not. Uh, you're there to get healthy. You go to church, you do those things. It, it, let me be bold. God doesn't care about the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't. He doesn't even ultimately care about Scripture. <gasps> now, I'm talking like Jesus did to the Pharisees. All of those things, as precious as they are, are tools for us to get closer to God. Should we throw them out? No, never. I, I think they're, they're special but they're tools. They're not the end. The Pharisees were totally derailed by this process because we don't keep asking the question, why am I doing this? Is it leading me closer to God? Or is it pushing other people away from God? <laughs> Turn to the page. Verse 16. So Pharisees are what kind of class of people? Middle class. And uh, a middle class person always wants to do what? Just move a little bit higher, right? And uh, so one of the ways that you move a little bit higher is that you become shrewd businessmen. And we've all had this temptation in our jobs is to bend the truth just a little bit or spin the truth just a little bit to get a leg up. And it gives the appearance that God is blessing you because you're getting ahead and you're becoming successful, right? Um, one of the things that's interesting is how Jesus teaches in another section of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, as followers of Jesus, there is no place for spin. But just to be clear and calm and direct in all of our interactions with people, right? And obviously the Pharisees had problems with spin. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. What? How can, what, what, what did the temple represent? This is, the, this is the presence of God literally coming down and connecting with the earth. Right? It was this place where people would go and, and experience the goodness of the Garden of Eden and be reminded that in the coming age that the garden would be restored because the presence of God would invite the whole world to come and to worship on the mountain. Right? Did Pharisees really want people to go to the temple? Where did they want them to go? synagogue. See how your politics can begin to affect. It's what Steve is laying out is what scripture said. 
The, the temple is the rendition of the, the Garden of Eden, the place you return to. The Pharisees will get rulings from rabbis about promises. Again, a rabbi is supposed to help you. Uh, if I swear by the temple, do I really have to mean it? Or if I swear by the gold right. of the temple, do I really mean it? If I swear by the altar of the temple. You know when you were a kid and you played that game, um, you made a promise, a pinky promise, but if you caught, was it cross your fingers? Cross your fingers, hope to die, stick a needle in my Yeah. <laughs> but and there was something about if you held your hand behind your back and you crossed your fingers, you didn't really mean it. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So it, this is terrible, but uh, Jews don't really like... Uh, Foreigners, Gentiles. Um, and let's be honest, for that's a lot a, of our that's history. A, that's an understatement. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very strong thing. So some of the rabbis will say, it's okay to lie to a Gentile. Yeah. Uh, now, th- this is why Jesus is kind of going ballistic with them. So you had to watch them. They would go through these games, right? Um, why what they were swearing by. And there's long rabbinic, I mean, I could take you through the Mishnah. So, and I think, I'm going to get this wrong because I don't read it with great interest, but I think it's the temple of the Lord is the highest oath that you can make. I, I think that's right. But there's variations of that. And again, if you're talking to a Jew, it's one thing. If you're talking to a righteous Jew, it's one thing. If you're talking to a rabbi, it's another thing. If you're talking to a Gentile, uh, it's another thing. But let me ask you, you're living in Nazi-occupied France, and the SS is going to interrogate you, asking you what you know and where your friends are. Would you be honest with them? Or would you lie? Would you lie to a Roman that crucified people? This is what is pushing some of the Pharisee conversation. It's not that easy uh, to run a business, have a family in the middle of a war. But again, Jesus, being the ultimate rabbi, is calling them on the carpet for this. That what you're doing in your survival mode is teaching God that we lie. Teaching other people that we can't be trusted. That's right. That we really don't love Gentiles. Despite the fact that Abraham was supposed to be the father of many nations, uh, the temple is the lighthouse to the whole world, it, it goes on and on. Um, so always with Jesus' teaching, there, there's depths there, there, there we really got to get into the detail. All right, well, Kurt's also cover the rest of that one too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, verse 23, woe to you teachers of the law, you law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well... This passage reminds me of a couple of passages in uh, the Old Testament. If you will remember in uh, Psalm 51, 
um, when David is praying. Let's just turn over here to Psalm 51. <clears throat> you know, David has just been uh, caught red-handed lying about Bathsheba and uh, Uriah and all of that. Nathan has just confronted him. And, uh, man, he goes through a lot there. Uh, Psalm 51. Probably very familiar to you. Uh, verse 10, uh, after he's asked for God's mercy, uh, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. That's what we've been talking about all study tonight. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of, of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then, he go, then go down, verse 16. You do not delight in a sacrifice. What? That is like what the whole Old Testament teaches on how to stay in right relationship with God. Is to offer sacrifices to God. Or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. That humility thing, right? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Now then flip over to, to uh, Micah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's kind of hard to see because it's so short. Pastor Kurt and I shared this with y'all in service a couple of weeks ago. But I'm just going to pick up in verse 6 because we, we are very familiar with the end of this passage that I'm going to read to you. But the, lead, the context leading up to it, not so much. With what shall I come before the Lord? Like for the Pharisees, I've got a tenth of my mint and my dill and my cumin. Like all of my little uh, herb boxes that I have in my window, that kind of thing. I got a tenth of it, and I'm bringing it to you. What shall I come with before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn? For my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus is just straight out channeling this passage here in Micah. It's like... We do this. What is the the smallest amount that I can get away with to be accepted by God? We have these conversations, right, with ourselves. With other, what's the smallest I can get away with? It's not the amount, but it's the heart. And then what the heart that God is doing in us compels us to do for the sake of others. To not lie, but to act justly. To not say to a person, what can I get out of you to make my life easier? But how can we be in this together 
to lift everyone up. That's fairness. That's justice. And then mercy. That when someone is suffering, that we offer love and care. And that we do it over the long haul. That's faithfulness. Jesus is saying, bring the tenth. Bring the, 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 the sacrifice of your produce. Bring it. But don't, that, that bringing of that should compel you to these larger things. Yeah. Why did God want animal sacrifice? Do you know? So if you mess up, if you sin, and let's say in modern day parlance, God finds you about $50,000. Would you think twice about sinning again? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would rack up quite a bill. Um, Pretty much by Monday, I'd be broke. When they start bringing these sacrifices, a lot of times we hear the prophets say that and we think, ah, see, God doesn't like animal sacrifice. He doesn't want any. That's not what they're saying. God was using it, as he does with all the law, a teaching tool. There is a big price to pay when you defy me. There is a big price to pay when you go against what I, as your creator, have said is right or wrong for you to do. And before people start suffering and before the world is turned into a nightmare, I want to teach you that the cost, Paul will say it, the the wages of sin is what? Death. So much better for an animal to die. And you have to see the reality of that before people begin to die. There is a process going through the animal sacrifice in which, again, the rabbis help us, that you have to sit down, put your hands on the animal's head and look into its eyes. How many of you put down your pet doing that? Did you feel something? God knows this. And so he was trying to teach us, don't do these things. There's a horrible cost. But what do we end up doing? Kill another bull. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I can get out of it. I can kill sheep all day long. I don't care. Uh, The Pharisees would have criticized the Sadducees for doing this. The Pharisees would have said to the Sadducees, all you care about is going through these mindless rituals where nobody is really helped. What we are trying to do as Pharisees is teach people the word of God so it lives in their hearts. And you see what Jesus is doing here to them? You tithe. You tithe so well that the spices, and spices were very valuable. They're not like, you know, we have in our pantry today, we just pull them out. They have to be imported. It was a big deal. It was a sign of wealth. Again, this middle class, business class, they have access to spices. So they're big and showy that, well, I have salt, (laughs) unlike my poor neighbors, um, and I'm going to give even a tenth of that. So they're they're doing, in a sense, what God has asked. They're, they're tithing, but it's not bringing them closer to God. They're just proud that they're going through this action. So what he's done is, in essence, accused them, and rightly so, of the actions that they hated in the Sadducees. But for them, it's just become the, the ritual, uh, not ritual, but the, 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 the practical application of the law. Again, when we get lost in doing the steps, classically, he's saying here, they will screen their water to get out a gnat. 
because the law says you shouldn't eat a dead thing. God didn't like roadkill. So that was the law. And the Pharisees came along and said, well, what if it's been dead for an hour? Can I still eat it? No. Um, what if it was good white meat? No. Um, okay. Can I eat a bug? No. <laughs> uh, so they're being so careful that you don't want a bug to slip in. And so he's saying, you're, you're doing all this carefulness, but there's no mercy. There's no justice. There's, there's nothing changing in your heart. But what are they eating? Whole. They're missing the gnats, but they're eating... Yeah, they're eating a camel. Now, camel is unclean. Again, God really didn't have to tell me don't eat that. (laughs) But uh, it's forbidden. Camels are not, despite what we think, uh, things that average people own. You're never going to roll up on a Jewish farm and have camels out in the pasture. Camels are for trade. They're for big business. Uh, Governments and merchants own camels. So who in Jewish society probably still has camels? Sadducees will have them, but they don't do a lot of trade. They stay in the territory of Judah. What's going to happen when the Romans come to destroy Jerusalem? It's going to drive out two groups, the Christians and the Pharisees. A lot of the other Jewish groups, and there are a lot, cannot leave because this is where their home is. They're, they're destroyed. The Pharisees... Like, where was Paul from? We can't even say it. I can barely say it. It's such a bad Greek word. Tarsus, right? That's not a good Jewish town. What, what is he living in Tarsus for? Abraham never, Moses never went. Why, why does uh, Paul's family live in Tarsus? Because they're making money. They're selling tents to the Romans to make money. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making money. I mean, Jesus does not condemn that. But what he's saying to the the Pharisees here is, you've engaged, in a sense, with the Gentile world. You've embraced the camel. You're eating the camel. The, The Jews of the diaspora that are spread all over the place are primarily Pharisees. And this is one of the reasons that they will survive when Rome destroys Jerusalem. Uh, they're in Rome. They're in Alexandria. They're in Turkey. They're all over the place. They have uh, wealth that can e- be easily moved, where the Sadducees have all their wealth in land, in produce that comes from the land. So it, Jesus is masterful. He really, you're, you're so proud that you follow these traditions, but as you follow the camel around the world, you're not... You're not bringing justice and mercy. There's no story about the good Pharisee, right? He tells a story about the good Samaritan, but not the good Pharisee. So, yeah, Pharisee looks down on everyone else. You're foreign. So, real quick story that Kurt's going to pray for us. So, uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Mike Schaefer, was doing an outdoor wedding at Cedar Canyon, and uh, he... Got, was getting towards the end of the service. It was about to, sh- to serve the congregation communion. And he broke the bread and did all that. And then he reached for the cup. It was a solid layer of gnats that were across the top of the cup. What do you do? <laughs> kind of flick off as many as you can and you serve communion. Right? That's how it's done. And I bet Jesus was plenty, plenty pleased.
And now we're going to have gnats in heaven. And you know why. That's right. Any questions tonight? We've covered a lot fast. Next week, we'll pick up uh, with Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea, and a few other Pharisees that that do get it. Um, But please hold on to, we do not need to go down this road. We have to guard against it always. So let's pray. Father, our God, we pray tonight for our church, for who we are as Christians today. Father God, it is easy and quick and often funny to find fault with those that have followed you before, both as Jew and Christian. But we know it's not what you want. We know the stakes are very high in our country, in the world, as what is right and true, what is God's purpose for us is increasingly clouded and attacked and torn up. Father God, we hear your call to be able to stand up for your truth. Stand up for the ancient wisdom that was given to Moses and passed on through the church to us. But Father, as we do it, we know there's a lot of emotion that comes up. We become fearful. We become angry. We become mad at those trying to destroy our way of life. We become frustrated when people make moral compromises and they won't stand for what's right. But in all of this muck and storm, O Lord, we pray to keep our eyes focused on you. You have said that the kingdom is the place. The kingdom is the place that it will be right. The time in which you will be Lord of all humanity is coming. And before that time, we've got to do the best that we can to show justice and mercy and real love to as many as we can, whether they be Jew or Gentile. So Father, now that it is our watch, we pray for your help. We desperately want to be found faithful in this hour to be the light and the salt that our world needs. We thank you for your word, the traditions that we've been given. And we pray that we always use them for your service to bring ourselves and others closer to you. And let us never forget to be humble, to laugh at ourselves, and to know there's only one perfect person, and that's you. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.